So Genesis chapter 7, starting at 13. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For forty days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out, people and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for a 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down, and on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month, and on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened a window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove, to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground. But the dove could find nowhere to perch because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. 
Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out, together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land, came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Well, thank you, Miriam. This is a story that we all know, isn't it? There are hundreds of kids' book retellings. You'll find toy arcs with pairs of animals in houses, in toy shops, and even public kindergartens and schools around the world. Uh, it's a story that even transcends Christianity. It's not just our story. Obviously, it's a Jewish story before it becomes a Christian story, a part of the Jewish Testament, but it's also part of the Muslim world. Uh, and so many nations around Israel have their own flood story. Uh, stories about a man and a boat escaping through a cosmic flood. I mentioned the Gilgamesh epic last week. It's an ancient story from the Mesopotamian region, the region around Israel's. It has a flood story where Gilgamesh, the hero of the story, goes off to meet uh, its story's Noah, whose name is Utanapishtim, just so you can Google it later. Uh, a man who was tasked by the gods to create a vessel, a ship called Preserver of Life, and he makes a square box out of wood. It's a bit different to the box that Noah makes, the ark Noah makes, but takes all the living beings, including people, people and animals, everything he can save, and at the end of the flood, they end up on a mountain where he sends out birds, a dove and a raven. It's in reverse order in the Gilgamesh epic, who knows why. And then the ground comes back, the waters recede, and Utanapishtim sacrifices to the gods, and he becomes immortal. He gets taken up into the heavens. Of course, more recently, we had our own modern retelling of the Noah story, Russell Crowe's version. And look, I'm going to confess, I actually loved this movie. I know lots of people hated it. Uh, but it retold the flood story as a story not just where God responded to violence and sin against or between humans, so much as human violence against the earth, and it became a retelling of the story that's a story about climate change and the coming environmental apocalypse. See, everybody takes this flood story and makes it about their theological vision, their understanding of God and life and what it looks like to live a good life in the world that doesn't cause a flood or perhaps it navigates its way through one. It's a versatile story, this flood story, and it's one where all of these versions and the competing versions in different uh, scriptures uh, leave us wondering what the point is, not just of our story, but of the relationship between the stories. Obviously, there's a competing of ideas going on. It leaves us with all sorts of questions that we probably won't answer today, like what scale the flood was. Was it local, just in this part of the world, on the 
earth as the readers would have understood it back then. They didn't have a globe in mind. Did it actually wipe out all people? Because we saw last week the Nephilim had descendants on either side of the flood. Uh, Did other cultures also have heroes on boats in the same flood? So you've got like shipping happening. I mean, that's a question. Uh, What's the Genesis story actually doing in contrast with these other ancient stories? What's its point? And, And these other ancient stories end up being about the heroic founders of other empires like Babylon, and we'll see that that's where we're going in Genesis in the next few weeks, the story of Babylon. And all of these are good questions. And they're all questions worth pondering, worth meditating on, but they aren't the questions I'm going to answer for you today, I'm sorry. Uh, You can ask me about my take later. Um, But we're looking at how these stories in the first chapters of Genesis are the origin story that shapes the story of the Bible and ultimately are the origin story for Jesus. How they create threads that run through the Bible, concepts and ideas that run all the way to the story that shapes us as a people. And as we get into this story of Noah, actually it's a story with an origin story too. Everything that's come before it in Genesis is part of the Noah story. And so we're just going to do a quick recap to get us ready to see what's going on in the flood. Are you ready? In the beginning, after God made the heavens and the earth, the waters of the deep were a barrier to life. They made the world, as we saw back in week one of this series, desolate and uninhabited. And you've got the Spirit of God, a wind, same word for wind, hovering over the waters. And God pushes back the waters to make sky and a cosmic dome and dry ground under it. There's a dome, there's a barrier between the heavens and the earth holding back the waters. He creates dry ground, earth, and we we were thinking about kind of farmers who didn't have a globe But this dry ground is a place where plants can grow so there can be fruitfulness. And then God fills the land with animals, with birds, fish and ground critters. And we're told they have the breath of life in them at the end of chapter 1. And finally, God makes people as his living images, his living idol statues who ruled over these other creatures and ruled over the earth for God. And their task, as we saw it unfold in chapter 2, was to spread the good garden of Eden across the face of what had been a desolate and uninhabited earth. And their command was to be fruitful and increase in number, to spread God's image throughout the world. Fruitful and multiply is the opposite of desolate and uninhabited. So that's where we've been so far. They were made to live as gardeners, who lived with God and ate from the tree of life, working together to bring life and to resist the chaotic forces from the heavenly world and from outside the garden, forces like the serpent, the crafty serpent, who had other plans for humanity and led us down the garden path and into curse, where people turn against each other and against God and the environment becomes increasingly hostile to life as punishment for humans turning on God, for our rebellion, for our siding with the serpent. And as we've gone further in this story, we've seen problems emerging because of our exile from Eden. We lose something about who we were made to be because we're not enjoying life with God and the tree of life, but we're exiled from God. And as this happens, people become more and more violent. 
And so last week, around the weird bit with the sons of God and the Nephilim, we had Noah introduced to us really briefly as a man who would reverse the curse, who would comfort us in the labour and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground. He would come as God's servant and we're told after the Nephilim stuff that Noah is finding favour in the eyes of the Lord. Noah is getting positioned for us, even before that weird stuff last week, as a new Adam, a new beginning. He rules over the animals in the story we've just had read for us, Miriam's read for us, bringing them life, looking after them, and he's told to be fruitful and multiply. And throughout the flood story, there's repeats of the categories of animals God makes in Genesis 1, who Noah is guiding through this process. And this new Adam comes as God prepares to begin again, to wipe out all the living stuff, all the stuff not ruled by Adam, not protected by Noah in the ark. And this is an extreme story. And it's a bit that the kids retelling of the story often gloss over. This is incredibly bloody. But we're told it happens, this decreation, this judgment, because humans were only evil all the time. That's what the narrative is setting up for us, that it is justice because the world is now not filled with God's image but the image of beastly humanity following the serpent, people whose every inclination is evil all the time. And so if we want to sit with the narrative, we need to sit with what it says about the people who are being judged here. The earth is full of violence. It's become corrupt. All the people have become corrupted humans bearing the image of the serpent and producing violence. And we saw that with Cain and with Lamech and with the Nephilim, the the warriors of old. Violence has been set up for us by this point as a real problem, a problem that God will have with humanity, a problem that's a pattern, a curse, where people turn against each other. It's a sign of something corrupted in our hearts. And so God is going to unmake what he has made Because of the violence, he's going to destroy them and the earth. He's going to start again. It's obviously not a total eradication because he has this plan for his new Adam, but there is a decreation happening here that we'll see as we work through the story so he can recreate with his new faithful humans. And there's lots of little allusions to the Genesis 1 story. Just notice as we skim by, and we'll, we'll... cover a bit before what Miriam read for us this week as well but in this story there's a whole lot of sevens that come up and when you hear the number seven you're meant to I think as a reader bounce back to Genesis 1 we're being put in the mood to see the creation week in the background seven pairs seven pairs seven days seven days new creation and so God sets Noah apart he calls him out of this land of violence he calls him to start off with, with a building plan. That's a pattern that's going to repeat a bit throughout the Old Testament, particularly with the tabernacle and the temple. But Noah gets told to build this monstrosity that looks nothing like a boat that's actually capable of floating on its own. In the picture books, it often looks boat-like, but it's just, it's a floating rectangular prism. It's a miracle of ancient engineering. It should not float. But God is going to put an end to life on the earth. Everything that has the breath of life on it, and he'll preserve the life in this ark, this box. 
It's interesting that the word for ark is actually also, in Hebrew, the word for coffin. I don't know if that's a helpful image that should be put in kids' books, a floating (laughs) coffin. But God's going to put an end to all the life on the earth, everything with the breath of life in it, except this stuff in this box, this sealed box. All the life under the heavens. Remember, He created the heavens and the earth. Everything on the earth will perish. God will withdraw His gift of life, the breath of life from them. And the barrier to life that was there in the beginning, the waters will return as the floodgates of heaven that have been holding it back as they open. The water comes from what God has been holding back in that heavenly dome. The separated waters from Genesis 1 become unseparated as the waters of the great deep burst as well. Floodgates open above, great deep burst below, and suddenly we're back in Genesis 1, one territory with darkness and the deep. Everyone except Noah will die. This keeps getting repeated, which is why I'm repeating it. It's obviously important. Everyone except the animals they save will die because God is going to establish his covenant with Noah as he starts again. Noah will keep alive all the living creatures. He will rule over them like the first humans were meant to. And we're told this is how it happens. The waters open. Just after it opens, Noah and his family enter the ark. God seals them in. The animals join them. They do things just as God has commanded them so he can preserve this life. And this is going to be the one space on earth where God keeps giving life by his breath of life. As everything else is overrun by the chaos waters from above and below, this ark, this box where God's covenant people are held is where the breath of life will still be. As this decreation happens and they will be kept alive in this box, sealed in until a new world emerges when the water recedes. Once the waters are in place, the people and animals are in place, there's a throwback to the beginning because the ark is lifted from the ground upwards towards the heavens. The ark, we're told, floats on the surface of the water. It's the same language seen in a minute as Genesis 1, but just have this picture of reality in mind. Remember we've been talking about the ancient view of the world with the, the heavenly dome and the waters above. If you're on a mountain or above the mountains, you're moving up towards the heavens. Here is this box where the breath of life is, preserving life, floating between the earth and the heavens. And it's floating just the way God's Spirit hovered over the waters. God's breath of life hovering over the waters. This is a moment anticipating new creation. The waters are covering the earth again. The earth is going to become desolate and uninhabited again. Days two and three of the creation story are undone, but they're ready to be done again. As the waters and the land are not separated, there's no dry ground, then days four and five are undone. All the creatures from Genesis 1 that are placed on the land and in the air, they all die. And we get these mirrored lists, these categories of creatures, animals, birds, all mankind, everything with the breath of life on it, on the dry ground, dies. And think back to Genesis 2 when it talks about the breath of life in its nostrils. That's how God gives life to Adam in the garden. Everything is wiped out. And we're left with Noah, this new Adam, and those with him in the ark. The ark is where God preserves life, where his breath of life is, in order to bring life to a new world. 
Did you notice, as Miriam read, that they are in the ark for an exceptionally long time? I don't know if you can see, this is very dark on the screen, but that's Russell Crowe with a, a bowl of fire. There's this scene in the movie that I love where they're on the ark and it's dark and they've been there for ages. And Noah, God's faithful servant, God's curse reverser, tells his family the creation story. I love that idea there in the ark as they ponder what's going on for this incredibly long time. Well, they're talking about this story and who they're to be as they emerge. What this new humanity will look like as Noah, the curse reverser, heads to the dry ground again and he and his family and the animals take up the task of being fruitful and multiplying again as they enter a new creation, a new garden through the chaos waters. And then God remembers his people on the ark, they've been there a long time, and he sends his breath or his spirit, it's that same word as in Genesis 1, the spirit hovering over the waters, he sends his breath to blow back the waters and the waters recede. This is the start of new creation. The cosmic floodgates are shut again. The springs of the deep, the floodgates of the heaven are closed so that the water can start receding. Again, it's a repeat of Genesis 1, God separating water and land to make a place for life. The water keeps receding, dry ground is appearing, and we get this repeated idea that the water's receding, just to hammer it home, and it starts with mountaintops, like the one the ark comes to rest on, and you know I like a good mountaintop. Then Noah, like Gilgamesh, sends birds out, a raven and then a dove. Uh, And then there's an interesting little thing where the dove goes out, hovering, flying over the face of the waters, over the face of the earth, which is still covered with waters. It's this little picture of a dove flying around above water as new life is about to happen. And that might become important as we go on. Eventually, it returns. After another seven days, it goes out again, and it returns with a sign that the earth is no longer fruitless. There's an olive branch, there's a fruitful tree, food for the animals. And so it doesn't come back the next time. And then Noah and his family emerge to find dry ground. They're called out of the ark, onto the dry ground, all of his human family, all the animals, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it again. It's a new beginning. And Noah's family, they emerge on this mountain where the boats stop, mountains are everywhere. Uh, And Noah makes a sacrifice on the mountaintop. He builds an altar to the Lord, which is mirrored in the Gilgamesh story. But instead of him then being swept up to life in the heavens, God smells the aroma of his sacrifice. It pleases him. And he makes a covenant with Noah on his family on a mountain so that they will be his covenant people on the earth. And he promises not to decreate this way again. Even if human hearts are not changed, even if they're still sinful all the time, there will always be a people he preserves from judgment. There are some changes, though, in this new beginning, in this call to be fruitful and multiply. From this point, death is part of humans living in the land, our rule over the animals, where in Genesis 1, people and animals were given plants and fruit. Our rule over the animals is now different. Now we're given the animals as food. Animals will live in fear of us. This is not Eden again. It's not a perfect world. And we get these limits put on the eating laws, don't eat animals with their lifeblood still in them, that build up to a prohibition against the shedding of blood of another human. 
God won't curse all people, but there will be an accounting for those who take up the pattern of Cain, those who spill human blood on the earth, those who turn their hands against an image of God will have their bloodshed. Violence against a human is a desecration of the image of God. And so God makes a covenant, not just with Noah and his family, but all the animals, not to destroy them. And it all looks good. Sunrise, new dawn, new earth. And we'll see next week that things go downhill, literally and figuratively, super fast. And so let's just look at some of the threads here that might flow through the rest of the story. This story of decreation to recreation happening through water, water where God provides salvation while judging the earth for its violent opposition to his design for human fruitfulness. God providing dry ground for people while holding back the chaotic waters, separating the waters. This is a story that repeats. It repeats as God creates a people for himself through water, another little new creation moment that happens in the Exodus story. Now, the word for ark in Hebrew gets used one other time in the Old Testament. And it's not where you think. I thought it was going to be the Ark of the Covenant. But that's actually a totally different word. They're just two different words for box. And translators, in their infinite wisdom, just decided they'd give us both boxes as arks. But there is another ark. Another ark using the same word. The only other ark that appears in the Old Testament. And it's this basket. Do you know the story? Moses, the baby Moses is placed in a basket, in an ark, when the violent empire of Egypt means that babies, Israelite babies, are being thrown into the waters of the Nile. His mum finds a loophole. She throws him into the chaotic waters in an ark. A coffin. When we meet Moses, the rescuer of God's people who is saved from the violence of Pharaoh, he is placed in an ark and put in the water. And so that old joke that's made to trick kids, how many animals did Moses take on the ark? Well, the answer is he couldn't fit any in because it was just a basket. Moses did go on an ark. So stick that one. The RI teachers who think they're going to get you. Here he is, symbolically dead, inside an ark, and there's lots of allusions to the Noah story. It's even coated with pitch, just like the ark in Genesis Uh, He's raised out of the waters to life. He's called Moses because he's drawn from the water and he's saved from these violent forces. He's a new Noah, a new Adam even. The flood story then is an Exodus story. God creating a covenant people through water. That is the story of Israel. The story they tell themselves about the Exodus, about God's rescue from the Egyptians. Because Moses grows up, he goes head to head with Pharaoh There's a fun thing too where the plagues are decreation moments, but that's a rabbit hole. He goes through those to lead Israel through water, through water that is salvation and judgment into a new fruitful land. God leads this project because he remembers his people. In the same way that happens in the Noah story, as they head out of Egypt, they're chased by Pharaoh and his warriors, violent people opposed to God's plan, and Moses stretches out his arms, and just as God's spirit, a wind, 
pushes the waters of the flood apart to make dry ground appear. They open the waters to make dry ground appear for Moses and Israel to cross on dry ground. Israel is preserved. They walk on this dry ground into new life. Saved from death, brought to life, made a people for God, a covenant people, while the violent army of the violent nation is destroyed under the waters. The chariots, the horsemen, all wiped out. And as God's people sing about this salvation, they sing about God's wind, His Spirit, moving the seas for their salvation against their enemies. It's the flood again. God preserving life by His Spirit through the waters. And on the other side of the waters, they become a covenant people. In Exodus, they're called a nation of priests, Form through this water as God saves and judges, bringing life and death. And Moses leads them up a mountain into the heavens, like Noah being above the mountains. Moses and Noah both build altars on mountains. They both make sacrifices, heaps of parallels. But just imagine for a minute that this story, the Exodus story, with the Noah story in the background, that this is your origin story as a people. I mean, it is for us because it's part of our Bible. But imagine you're an Israelite, living with this story of God saving through the waters, saving people from violent empires, judging violent empires and leading them, leading his people towards a fruitful life. Imagine you are telling these stories, not just in the ark in the darkness, but to each other in houses in Babylon, in exile, armies surrounding you, a violent nation out there beyond your doors with their own flood stories about their own heroic heroes who become godlike. But in their story, the gods don't flood the world because of violence. They flood the world because humans are too noisy and annoying. That's such a low view of human life. Gods that are capricious and violent, who shape a capricious and violent people. And these people in Babylon, they're living, never quite sure if God's going to do it again, if they get too uppity, if they revolt against the revolting empire and so you've got the story of noah and of moses and for you you've got the story that maybe god will actually save a people from out of a violent empire through water again and there's a promise in isaiah the same chapter where we got the branch of jesse a few weeks ago that looks forward to the waters of egypt and babylon being swept back by a wind of god by his spirit so that people will walk on dry ground again, a remnant of his people, because he won't ever destroy everybody in these exile and punishment moments. A remnant of his people will be saved and walk on this ground towards life, just like Israel did when they came out of Egypt. The prophets hope for a new exodus, a new moment of salvation and judgment, where God's people are brought through waters from death and violence into life and at the end of the story even though god's people are back in the land they're still waiting for the new exodus they're still ruled by violent foreign powers human hearts are still evil and opposed to god violent empires are still reigning and there hasn't been a moment when all israel not just judah but all of the tribes have returned to be god's people like isaiah promises we get in the story noah leading a remnant, a small family of people through judgment, hoping for recreated life, and we'll see next week, nothing really changes. We get Moses leading God's nation towards the land, 
but right after he finishes his sacrifice on a mountain, Israel fails, just like Noah's family will next week. We get Israel established in the land, only to start worshipping foreign gods and be carted out as well. And then, after all of these stories that repeat, we get Jesus. So here's some cool threads being tied together, I think. You can think they're not cool. At Jesus' baptism, John is baptising people on the east side of the Jordan. That's the Babylon side. He's making a way for people to head back in to the promised land. And as this baptism is reported in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, as Jesus comes out of the water, there's a spirit hovering like a dove above the waters. It's a flood moment. The ark hovering above the waters, the dove being sent out hovering above the waters. It's also a creation moment. God's spirit hovering above the waters, moving like a dove. Something is about to happen, the gospel writers are saying. New life is about to emerge through these waters, through baptism. John has just said that Jesus, the one who comes after him, will bring a different baptism. He'll baptise with the Spirit, the wind of God, and with fire. He's coming to fix the human hearts that create violence and to lead another exodus, bringing salvation by his Spirit and judgment. He's bringing another ark moment, another invitation to have life preserved by God, saving those who will listen and find life with the God who raises us to the heavens. And Jesus says in Luke that he's going to experience another baptism. He's come to bring fire on the earth. Maybe that's a loophole because God says not water again. But he's coming to bring judgment. But first he's going to undergo a baptism. And he's talking about the cross. The cross as a baptism. The cross is where God's judgment and salvation are poured out but it's also where we find a path out of death. If violence against a human, an image of God, is a desecration of the image, a sacrilege, then this is the ultimate expression of violent desecration. Jesus, the image of God, nailed to a cross, cursed, violent realms, violent armies coming against God, a violent desecration that creates an ultimate debt that we now owe to God. At the cross, he's surrounded by these forces that oppose God's plan, just like Noah was, just like Moses was, just like Israel was in Babylon. And at the cross, Jesus is providing a way through God's judgment, a way of salvation and rescue, a way of life. At the cross, God provides another timber vessel that saves. If you think of the ark as a coffin, here's a vessel designed to kill to leave people buried, that will produce new life, that carries us from this violent world, one that is judged, into new life. Water and blood flood from his side and in that flow we find judgment and salvation. Those who reject Jesus and side with the violent world that killed him face death, while those who cling to the cross for life will be carried into new life. We'll see in a couple of weeks when we get to Babel how the baptism Jesus brings by God's Spirit coming like wind and fire in Acts is this new exodus. The fire both judges and saves, separating those in God's family, those on the ark, his covenant people, 
from those who choose the violent world. But remember after the resurrection, after the recreation moment that happens there, where Jesus goes up on a mountain, the Great Commission, and tells his people that God is with us, so we should baptise people and make disciples. That's a picture of this story, the story of the death and resurrection of Jesus, as the fulfilment of all these other stories becoming our own story through our own baptism. Because that's what baptism is. It's us dying with Jesus and entering new life. Just as Noah's Ark and Moses' Ark are death-to-life moments in floating coffins, this becomes our origin story. Romans 6 talks about it this way. Baptism represents us dying with Jesus, going down into the water, sharing in his death, so that we might be carried to new life, raised up above the waters as heavenly people. Baptism is our flood story. It's our exodus moment. The cross is our ark, raising us up into the heavens. Peter picks up this idea in 1 Peter, where he talks about how we, the people who are baptised, the people who follow Jesus, become an exodus people, a kingdom of priests, because we've been united into Jesus. We've been chosen by God. He says this weird stuff a bit later on about Jesus preaching to spirits from before Noah's time. And maybe that makes a bit more sense after last week with the weird sons of God and the Nephilim. But he says we're people who are saved through water, not saved by water. Baptism doesn't save, but we're saved through this idea of death and life, carried through death and judgment, recreated as God's Spirit moves, made alive by the Spirit, though we're put to death in the body, saved, we raised up into the heavens. This is our flood story. When we're baptised in water, this is what we are representing. This is a story we make real for ourselves through actions, a story that we claim for ourselves because we have been chosen, we've been claimed by Jesus. When we are baptised and when we baptise others together, we're part of the people of God created through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now there's something beautiful for those of you here who were baptised as infants, uh, just like Noah's family on the ark and the kids in Egypt, we're not saved by our own efforts, but by being part of the covenant family who are protected by God, following the ultimate Noah or the ultimate Moses, Jesus. There's also something beautiful about immersion, which I love about the Church of Christ tradition and love that we get to share in now. This picture of going down into the water, being covered by floodwaters, dying and coming up made new. A picture of death and resurrection. And when we see others baptised, we, a baptised community, remember our ark that carried us through the waters. We remember the death of Jesus, the cross, God's protection from judgement, that we've been brought from death to life and that we live as a baptised and baptising community. We live as this community, the dead made alive, those who know God won't flood the earth again and destroy everyone, but that Jesus promises to return, bringing judgment and salvation, life or death, that he came to bring a baptism of the spirit and fire to bring death, judgment on the violent and evil world that would kill God, but also to bring recreation. Life in this baptised community is shaped by this story. Life with new hearts that come by the Spirit, life that rejects the violent and destructive world, 
even if it means stormy weather for us, but life where we cling to the cross. Life where maybe like Noah, we value God's creation and try to make little pockets of Eden around us, carrying this story through the storms, telling our origin story, the gospel in the dark, hoping that it will shape us as we seek to point people to the light. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Then we're going to sing a song together and then I'm going to invite Mitch to come up and share how this story, the gospel story, has become his story and we're going to celebrate his baptism together as a picture of the story of Jesus and as a reminder for all of us that we're part of that story too. If we've received his spirit, that baptism we proclaim in the creed and a reminder of our own baptism for those of us who've been through the waters. Will you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that through the storms, he is Lord of all. We thank you that you carry us through times of hardship, that you are with us in this violent and dark world, and that you are taking us to new life in a new creation. Lord, we pray as we live now that we would live as new creations, that we would be a people who are marked out as yours, that we would be this baptised and baptising community that tells the story of the gospel, pointing to the light in a dark world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.